0: Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. On this podcast, our objective is to always enable our audience, which are high-performing fee-for-service professionals, to be continually working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. And to that end, on today's podcast, I had a very thorough conversation with Kevin Bishop, He is a longtime performance coach. He is a vice president of the advisor consulting department at First Trust Portfolios. And in this episode, we talked about new perspectives on growth. And we took a deep dive here, so you'll want to have a pen and paper handy. If you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to hear on this podcast down the road, just let us know. Thanks for listening. Kevin Bishop, welcome to the Always On Podcast. Thanks for being
1: here. How are you doing? Fantastic. I'm excited. This is our first joint podcast, so I'm stoked. Yeah, we've done many events together over the
0: years. I am going to start referring to you affectionately as the most interesting man in practice management. And uh, I say that because you're a VP with the advisor consulting department at First Trust. You're a performance coach, but over the years, as I've gotten to know you and see you in action, your approach for interpreting gaps in efficiency and productivity is incredibly unique. And I'm looking forward to getting into that. Your perspective on how to address those gaps is always actionable. And your style in terms of how you deliver it, both on a one-to-one and in a group setting is very motivating. So could you just give us a little bit of perspective on how you see the world? I will say that the the many things, again, when we've done those masterminds in Palm Springs, you you tend to avoid the theoretical and just get into specific addressable areas. And I respect that a great deal. And it's very unique.
1: Yeah. Yep. So um, what I've been told, and, and I think people have assessed me correctly. And first off, thank you for the compliment. I don't know that I'm the most interesting man in practice management. I, have to, I happen to think I'm maybe a little bit boring and mundane at times, but I've always had an affinity for numbers ever since I was a kid. Math was interesting to me. And so I've always been interested in metrics because from my perspective, they tell most of the story. They don't tell all of the story. But it's hard to hide. It's hard for advisors to give me a narrative. And then when I look at the metrics, I can see that, that what they're telling me and what I'm seeing in the numbers doesn't necessarily align. So I, I, I love math for that reason. And then the other thing that I've been told is that I have an affinity to take complex and be able to break it down to simple, actionable ideas. And that's something that I've refined over time. It's something that I learned from a, a mentor of mine. Because at the end of the day, it all boils down to your ability or an advisor or a team's ability to execute. If you can't execute on a strategy, then you've burned a lot of time. Maybe you've burned a lot of time coming up with it, thinking of it, refining it. But until you execute, you don't see any payoff. And the the framework that we like to use as, as a team at First Trust is a three-legged stool, which is insight, decision, and action. Right? With better insights, we generally make better decisions, but decisions in and of themselves don't bring about any change. It's not until you act. And so we, we just iterate, or I like to iterate with teams, what's the insight? How do we get more insight? What do you see? What does the research say? What are other top performers doing? Let's make high-quality decisions, and then let's act. Because at the end of the day, we're all about helping advisors move the ball And that doesn't happen without execution.
0: Well, and your window on the world, along with Jackie Wilkie, enables you to create that insights and innovations blog, which, again, speaks exactly to the quantitative and the qualitative approach that uh, very high-caliber fee-for-service teams uh, rely upon. And you play at that high level, which gives you a lot of credibility. But back to the most interesting man in practice management, I'm I'm adding that in because especially because I know you're a numbers guy is that now you're a hockey fan full on. And there's no sport on planet earth that. Yeah, exactly. There's no sport that is more fascinating when it comes to stats, in my opinion, like the plus minus stat in hockey. And I don't know if you know this, but I, I believe if I remember correctly, the longest continuous play in hockey without a whistle, like between whistles was about 11 minutes. So imagine, 11 minutes, where do you see that in any sport? It's, it's incredible. So anyway, I'm glad that we can connect on that, that level. But yeah, go.
1: go. That's, that's, that's 22 shifts in this day and age, right? That's, that's, that's For offensive players, that's 22 shifts. So how do you do that as a professional team? You've got to have organization. You've got to have process. You've got to have communication. You've got to have discipline. Because there's another professional team on the bench adjacent to you. Yeah. So I've I'm, 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 I'm not historically been a, a deep hockey fan, but the more time I spend getting into it now that we have a team just, you know, an hour north of me up in Seattle, I'm fascinated by it. And the metrics inside of the game are unbelievable, unbelievable.
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, there, if you ever get a chance to see a practice, to your point about the rehearsal of not winging it and not flying by the seat of their pants, It is fascinating how deliberate they are. And of course, they have situational awareness for when things derail, but the rehearsal is incredible. And even the drills, there are some coaches, you can tell who's coaching the team just by listening to the drills, the way the puck is hitting and the frequency and the skating style. It's a fascinating thing, but we'll save that for another conversation. Let's talk, and I want to break this down into four sections. I want to, first of all, talk about the progression of the industry. As you know, the enlightened professional is trying to not just land in the intersection between professional contrast and professional scarcity. They also understand that the industry is incredibly fluid and and constantly evolving, so they have to maintain that. So... For those of you listening in, I want you to, in your mind's eye, or if you have a pen and paper handy, create a three-circle Venn diagram horizontally, and just inside those circles, on the left circle, writing the letter K, the middle circle, the letter E, and the right circle, the letters IP. So, Kevin, I think this is going to be near and dear to the way you see the world in the pursuit of that scarcity and contrast. When a financial professional becomes aware of trying to differentiate themselves and, and elevate, they, they initially start on their knowledge, right? Their designations, their credentials, their qualities, and the solutions they represent. And that is the first stepping stone. But then it occurs to them, okay, that I'm still a generalist, so I need to evolve from knowledge to expertise. So they go from the knowledge economy to the expertise economy, where they start to decommoditize their value and place as much importance on practice management and relationship management as they do on asset management to increase their fee worthiness. When did you make that observation where advisors were differentiating not just in their technical ability, but in terms of the client experience and the way they manage relationships? How far back does that go for you?
1: Well, I've been in this space for 20 years and I observed that the, the early adopters were predominantly in the RIA channel 20 years ago. They had, they had, left, they had either left the captive environment and they were now full entrepreneurs which if you think about it is is um, the most free and maybe liberating environment but it also places the highest demand on the advisor and their time and the team's time because they're responsible for all of it right? they're responsible for all of it so the the proverbial chains might be off there may be fewer restrictions but with great freedom comes tremendous responsibility so we we observe that early on particularly in the RIA market and and now we continue to see that innovation in, in all channels. Uh, maybe not as much in the in the bank channels, but certainly in the independents, in the regionals, in the wires. We are seeing more and more teams have recognized that if we want to create professional contrast, we've got to elevate. We've got to elevate the messaging. We've got to elevate the experience. We've got to elevate our solution set, and we've got to do it in a way that clients can actually comprehend they can actually understand and appreciate what it is the advisor is is doing so it's it's been a, a a trend that that dates back a long time and and it it falls in line with the shift in our industry away from products now our industry is in the service world but the ones that are breaking out are the ones that are saying no 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 it's it's about the experience it's it's about making certain that yeah, we are to use your phraseology. We are going to put all the pieces of the financial puzzle together for these clients, right? And we're going to focus on simplifying the complexity of their success. Right? That's my favorite phrase, in, in, and I've been doing a ton of branding consulting over the last three, four years. At the core, the the top advisors they are embracing the opportunity, the challenge of simplifying the complexity of client success. Because when we get successful, myself, you, anybody else, by default, their life gets more complicated. So then the question becomes, how do you institutionalize a business that does that so that you can be confident as the business grows, as the world that we live in gets more complicated, products, markets, regulatory environment, et cetera, what needs to be in place to institutionalize the delivery of that value? And you can't do it with just knowledge. You, you can become uh, an expert in certain areas, but then it's how do you deliver that experience day in, day out that is separating the best from the rest?
0: Well, first of all, I got to acknowledge that was the first uh, Spider-Man reference I've ever had in a professional conversation. So I appreciate your tribute to uh, Peter Parker's uncle there. Great responsibility. But you're right. The entrepreneur even if they're associated with a significant blue chip firm, they're in business for themselves, not by themselves, but for themselves, which means they've got to think about bench strength. They've got to think about outsourcing commoditized minutiae to put more sand in their hourglass. They have to be more deliberate about who they're suited for. When they shift from the knowledge economy to the expertise economy, they're shifting from being, a generalist to a specialist and putting a greater emphasis. So not to downplay their technical ability, but the experience is not promissory on performance short term. It's right. promissory on what it means to be the client. And uh, that yeah. is profound, but that's that's pretty much yesterday too now, especially in light of what we've sure. been through in the last couple of years. Now the next frontier is the third circle, and that's intellectual property, which means every investment of effort the team makes is not transactional. It's contributing to proprietary assets. It's contributing to the clients appreciating the practice and the process as much as the people. Is creating a playbook. It's shifting from cobbling together circles of influence and actually reining in and creating a value-added support team that's engaged in the process. It's creating thought leadership, being that subject matter expert. It's its culmination on building an actual enterprise. And I I know you're in the same camp. That's very fulfilling to help somebody bring to life. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. With that said, uh, it is not easy. Right? It is not easy, and and part of what's working against them is not necessarily just the complexity of the industry, the pace of what's going on. For many of them, it's that their track historically, there hasn't been training, um, there hasn't necessarily been activities that have given them the skills. Right? This is this goes back to I know you love the e-myth, Michael Gerber, right? This this is the classic, this is the classic tale where the architect who can design beautiful structures, intricate structures, that is nowhere near the same set of skills as it would take to build a firm full of architects. Now, that's that's not a knock on an individual or, or architects in general. It's just the reality is, is to build a firm, you've got to be able to market that firm, to manage that firm, to acquire the right human capital, to have the right technology, to have the right Client service client relations. And if you're a good architect, it's a different set of skills. When I when you were talking earlier, you you used, you didn't use the word intentional. That's my word for it. But as we talk through all these different frameworks on the podcast, I think of it as reactive, proactive, which is where most people talk about the dichotomy between reactive and proactive. The teams that are getting to where, that are skating to where the puck is going. They are truly intentional. They're intentional with the activities. They're intentional about how do we build this in such a way that it adds value to client relationships, that we're growing our intellectual property, that we are creating professional contrast. And it is it's impossible to do in a reactive environment. It's you're capable of doing it in a proactive environment, but you have to get truly intentional with decisions and intentional in making trade-offs and evaluating hey if we're going to go and do this it means there's going to be some other things that we're not able to do and i I know that that we are on the same page there but that's a thread that's going to come out as we talk through all these frameworks on the podcast today
0: okay so I've got a tear in my eye. Are you using Jedi mind tricks on me, like with your analogies and metaphors?
1: I mean, Puck is going, I mean, jeepers. I'm just trying to stay even with you. I'm just trying to to <laughs> to stay in the same, and on the same lap of the track in this race over the next hour.
0: Well, that's not going to be problematic at all. I, I will tell you up front, and uh, I'm taking that architect analogy because it's actually brilliant. Because, you know, Michael Gerber uses the difference between a baker and somebody who can run a bakery. But somebody who can be an architect and actually create a blueprint to build something, that's a skill. Somebody yeah. who can also take that and actually monetize it in an enterprise, very different skill set. But, you know, the, the the alignment there is incredible. So, yeah, I'll be taking that. I might I might make reference to it in the uh, advisor play or in the uh, blue square method and pay tribute to you. You,
1: you, you should a hundred percent because in, if we're making tally marks of things that (laughs) we have taken from each other, I'm way ahead on the scoreboard in terms of what I've taken from you over the years. So please. Wow. That's kind of you to say,
0: I'm not quite sure. Maybe I haven't been as uh, open about the stuff I've taken for you and shared because you know, my rule of three, right? The first time I talk yeah. about it, I give you credit. i say it's like Kevin Bishop says. Second time, it's like someone says. Third time, it's like I've always said, becomes mine. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay so let's shift. Let, let's, let's, we'll build on the progression of where the advisor came from and where they are and where the unmet needs and the opportunities are. Now let's jump way far, farther down the path to the end game. And that's enterprise value. So, everybody, create yourself another three-circle Venn diagram. And let me talk about, uh, with Kevin, not just what all of this is, but what it does. Because we all know what forced savings can do. Pay yourself first. We all know that there's an inflection point of, of how money compounds, disciplines compound. You're trying to build a business that lasts, but you're also trying to build a business that you can sell and monetize at some point for maximum value. So let's talk about the enterprise value spectrum. So in the first left circle of the Venn diagram, you have CF, which is just core fundamentals. And this has been around forever, right, Kevin? I mean, EBITDA, recurring revenue from fees, all of that that contributes to about a three, two to three times multiplier in the monetization and the liquidity event. Okay, it's very, very important. Yep. But then it gets interesting. The second, the middle circle is CQ. That's the credibility quotient. And this is where you start really standing out because if it's just the CF, it's that, that bar is kind of low. I mean, it's okay, great. You got a million dollar business. 900000 in recurring revenue, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's worth something meaningful. But the credibility quotient is there's no hair on the business. You've been deliberate behind the curtain in terms of your books. Uh, there's no skeletons. There's no cracks. And nothing falls through the cracks because you've taken HR seriously. You know your metrics. What have you seen? How does that contribute to enterprise value ab- above and beyond
1: the 2 to 3x? It's, it's substantial, right? It's substantial. And the way that I like to think about it when I'm talking with or, or coaching teams is there's a quantitative component. You said fundamentals, but it's the numbers, right? It's how much revenue is there? What's the probability of future revenue streams? Is it growing? How efficiently are we turning assets into revenues? How many clients, how many staff, et cetera? That's the quantitative. Right? Then the next, you said credibility quotient. I think of that in, in two ways. One is that's the qualitative Right. Yeah. What's, the, what's the qualitative aspect of this business? Right? Or, said another way, how sustainable is it? Right? Is there anything that's mm-hmm. going to jump up and bite us? Is it a book that is packed full of uh, decumulators? Right? That, that obviously impacts the metrics, but it also speaks to the quality. How, how connected are clients to somebody other than the primary advisor? That's huge. That's huge because if the advisor departs, the successor needs to or wants to know, hey, are there relationships between somebody other than the advisor and the client? How connected is the team? How, How dependent is the portfolio process on the advisor? Because if that advisor departs and he or she is portfolio manager, then the source of the stream of all those returns departs. So the qualitative piece is is huge, and our and our industry in aggregate has has done a good job of of understanding that. And you will see, you know, you see the base two to three x right now. You might see another two to three x for a high quality business. Um, but I know where you're going, Duncan. And I'll let I'll let you talk about the third circle of the Venn diagram. It's the part where it gets really really interesting. Right? It, and, and out, out of nowhere, actually, really. You can right. actually in the go last couple further. of years out
0: of nowhere. Yeah. 100%. Okay, so let's okay, so you've got you've got quantitative fundamentals in the left circle, qualitative mm-hmm. credibility drivers, and then in the right circle you're back to that intellectual property which I would call qualitative quantitative plus. And it's funny, I just talked about this a couple of days ago with a team. I talked about the four ables. The four ables are is your business predictable, sustainable, duplicable, and scalable. Mm -hmm. Those are the four ables. And if that is all driven by proprietary process, documented, it's not in anyone's heads. It is a pure intellectual property that supports all the things that I can only get from your business what have you seen Has that has done to the enterprise value above and beyond? Let's just say we do some simple math where if you get the first two, you're at five to six X, where can it go from there if the IP component is built into?
1: Well, it it, it might be another two to three X on top of that. And there's there's a ton of factors that go into that. The word that comes to mind for me is that's the kicker right? Yeah. That's the kicker. We've got the quantitative, we've got the qualitative and then there's there's the accelerator or the kicker. And I love the four ables because that, that paints a vision of you've got to have infrastructure in place. You've got to have clients connected to the team. You've got to have process, no skeletons in the closet. Like you said, you can drive substantial increases in value when you have that procedures manual and you're able to pass the baton to the to the successor and say, here it is. Here's everything. Now, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant when we talk about multiples. Um, it's very easy for us to understand, but it's, it, can be, it can be dangerous just throwing those numbers around sure. because you, you might go get a high multiple because you're willing to chain yourself to the desk for the next 10 years and take a small base salary. And the, the purchaser is saying, well, we'll pay up for that because what are they actually buying? If you think about it, what are they what are they paying up for? They are paying up for certainty of future cash flow and profitability. So if you want a higher multiple, they're paying up for certainty of future profitability, cash flow, growth, etc. cetera. So anything that you can do in terms of the structure of the business process documentation to increase the level of certainty, to decrease their risk They will pay up for. The more risk that they take on in a transaction, the more uncertainty they're going to come back to the seller and say, "We're going to discount the value because that represents risk to us." Classic, classic discounted cash flow model. Right? What are the profits? What are the what's the ability to grow those profits over time, and how sustainable is it? And the sustainability factor is the discount rate the less certainty, the less sustainable, the more risk the purchaser is going to take, that's going to drive, that's going to compress the multiple. It's going to compress the valuation. When you, when you liberate them from that uncertainty and those risks, because you've done the hard work, you've created the IP, all the documentation, all the team building, all the job descriptions, all the HR management, all the compliance. I mean, you name it, this is, this is hard work. It can be tedious at times, but that's what the buyer is willing to pay up for. That's what they're willing to participate if you're in a a team that wants to give up some equity, right? You want to monetize it now, but you want to stay engaged. That's what they will pay up for.
0: A customized podcast can add credibility and efficiency to your communication efforts. Sifting good prospects from the mass of suspects, staying top of mind with strategic partners and activating more advocacy from existing clients can be achieved with a turnkey approach. Learn more at proudmouth.com. Do you aspire to consistently attract and keep great clients while driving the enterprise value of your business? Do you want to achieve professional contrast by supplementing your technical ability with a consistent client experience driven by best practices? The Blue Square Toolkit brings the proven Pareto Systems philosophy and process to life in a way that tethers your team so that you can competitor proof your clients, gain their full empowerment and attract quality referrals, all while restoring liberation and order in your life and all in an intuitive, easy-to-use turnkey solution. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Okay, so everybody just got a little window a glimpse into sort of the art and science, because I like how you tempered down the expectations and just focused on the cause to the effect, right? The science of of getting there. And, And basically what that validates is when somebody works on their business, they're not just working on efficiency, productivity, client acquisition, they are working on their enterprise value. And we have seen, and I don't know how long this window stays open for, where businesses that five years ago would have been 2 or 3x have been acquired entirely or partially with a kicker and with some, you know, hold back for later north of 10x because of how incredibly well built out it was. But bottom line is for savings, incrementalism, just every investment of effort contributes to that enterprise value. I like that statement they're buying certainty of future cash flow that is very well said so okay in the meantime because a lot of people they put off their exit plan because it seems so distant so that's fine so let's talk about something that's a little bit more immediate in terms of untapped opportunities unmet needs and i guess you could say the proverbial fork in the road that is you're, you know, many people we're seeing are either right there or approaching that opportunity, that decision. So third three circle Venn diagram around the concept of growing up market. Okay? This is part of the evolution. And this is not Darwinian, this is not natural selection. This is very intentional, very deliberate, very engineered mm-hmm. by the team, to add to their efficiency and their fulfillment. So another three-circle Venn diagram. In the left circle, let's talk a little bit about growing down. The middle circle is brand within a brand. And the right circle is just all in on the concept of growing up market into that multifamily office. And I know this is something you're talking about extensively. So let's – let because this is near and dear to your heart. This is kind of your core – the whole concept of understanding capacity and why it might be a good idea to grow down. So let me, uh, I'll, I'll let you kick yep. that off and then I'll chime in.
1: Yep. Yeah. So from my perspective, the number one challenge in the industry in the last four to five years has been capacity. And there are two things that are creating that issue. Right? Number one, it's the increase in complexity. Just of the business, more products more complex markets, higher regulatory standards that everyone needs to adhere to. You've got technology, innovation in the tech space, new tools, and you have clients who they're raising the bar in terms of what they're asking for from their advisor. So when you look at those five things, the advisor or team, they're squarely in the crosshairs. Their job to put the right products in the portfolio or to put the right solutions in place. It's their job to keep their finger on the pulse of the markets make sure clients are positioned appropriately. It's their job to remain in compliance, right? Their job to utilize the technology that either their firm has delivered to them or technology that they have sourced. And they are responsible for delivering service advice and planning. So the team is squarely in the crosshairs. Right alongside that, businesses have been growing. If you are a quality advisor, especially, especially over the last two years, You've grown because you've been acquiring relationships. You've, you've stayed in contact. Not only did you triage clients during the pandemic, but you have s- seen the opportunity with all of the money in motion and you've grown. So these two things have occurred simultaneously, which put pressure on a team's capacity. Anytime I talk about capacity, I, I like to keep it simple. There are three solutions. There's only three categories of solution. Okay? Number one, you can work with fewer clients. It's a proven best practice. We see teams doing it all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but it's a very healthy exercise. Number two, you could add bodies to your team to address capacity. You could say, hey, there's more work that needs to be done. We want to continue to make improvements. Let's bring more resources onto the team. There are there are tremendous upsides and benefits of doing that, but there are potential pitfalls. Right? Labor is not cheap at the moment. If you've got a high-functioning team, um, bringing somebody in could disrupt that chemistry. If you bring another advisor in, there's risk that they could depart. Are they going to take the firm's clients, et cetera? So just saying, hey, we're going to throw more bodies at the capacity problem is not necessarily the, a place to start, but it is the second category of solution. The third category of solutions is you find ways to get more efficient. You find ways to outsource, you find ways to streamline, you find better ways to use technology. That could be model portfolios with discretion, better use of a CRM, a client segmentation that's real client segmentation. And when I say real client segmentation, it's not just a labeling exercise because we see that all the time, right? I'll ask an advisor, did you segment? oh, yes, we've got A's and B's and C's and D's. And then we say, show us, the, show us the matrix for what each of those get. And more often than not, the general response that we get back is, well, we pretty much serve everybody the same. So efficiencies need to be created. So those are the three levers. From a metric standpoint, if you look at top performing solos, for example, top performing solo advice businesses. the the data will tell you that they work with about 75 clients per resource on their team that's the median observation for the top quartile so if you think about the top quartile as being the top 25 percent and then you take the median observation you're looking at the 87 and a half percentile roughly so that's a high bar They work with about 75 relationships per resource on their team. So a good solo with the staff member, we're going to see them somewhere in the neighborhood of roughly 150 relationships. Personally, I like to see them closer to 100, but that's, that's the median observation. The minute you go to the team space, we look at teams that are doing less than $5 million of revenue, that number goes from 75 to 39.
2: Hmm.
1: Massive discrepancy. So teams are working, top per, top quartile teams, the median observation, so 87.5%, they're working with, let's just call it 40 active clients or households per resource on their team. So if I've got two advisors and they've got three staff, that's five bodies, we're going to find them somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred clients. Now, the higher quality ones will have less, the ones that are driving a higher revenue per client will generally be less. The ones that are driving a lower revenue per client have a tendency to be higher in client number. Mm. When you click up to teams between 5 and 10 million, that number drops to 32. When you get to teams over 10 million of revenue, that number drops to 26. Mm. So let's just contrast that for a minute. Solos, great solos, 75 clients per resource on their team. Great enterprises, the ones doing more than 10 million, 26. So what do we deduce from that? We deduce that the teams that are getting to high IP, moving up market, right? They are serving one third the number of relationships per resource on their team as a typical solo. So they are in a position to, to push more resources to clients, to engage deeper, to document process. They are in a position to say no to suboptimal opportunities. So we've got we've got capacity metrics, we've got revenue per client metrics. I will I will tell everybody who, who is fortunate enough to tune in and has the time to listen to us that there's an inverse relationship between revenue per client and capacity, meaning when we look at firms, the higher revenue per client firms, which is where most advisors say they want to go, right? What do they all have in common? They all have the resources. They are protecting their capacity. They have low numbers of clients per resource. It is a critical ingredient in being able to move up market. I have I have yet to bump into a team that's doing 20,000 of revenue per client and serving 150 relationships per resource on their team. There's there's a no man's land out there that, that nobody has cracked the code on. So mm. I, I I went a little geeky with the metrics there, but it's it, these are important numbers to understand because so many advisors are are over capacity. Of all the things we talk about when I'm in front of a group, that's where I get the most kind of bug eyes, eyebrow raises, like whoa, those are numbers that that are distant from where we are as a business, which is a very useful exercise, right? That creates energy, creates motivation, et cetera, but capacity is critical. So growing down to go back to where we started growing down, we are advocates of that, but we also recognize some of some advisors, they get to a point where they're just not comfortable cutting any further. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: They're just not comfortable cutting any further because they've been great relationship builders. So that's actually the perfect segue to the brand within a brand because then we're coaching them. Hey, find the efficiencies, but you need to add add to your team to deal with this capacity. And the role that we're coaching them to bring on is that of the service advisor. It's not another advisor, asset gatherer. It's somebody that you put on the team so that you can take the the quote unquote C book and give it to the service advisor, and you can you can build. A sep, it's a it's not a separate business, but it should feel like a separate business. Right? It's it's scalable, it's efficient. We've got teams that have called this their gold desk. That's clever branding. We moved all the small clients to the gold desk. They got a separate phone number to call in, a separate email address to send questions to. They get their own newsletter, they have their own quarterly calls that they can dial into. And it's a service advisor that the relationships have been transitioned to and it's a scalable model that deals with capacity but it also liberates right it liberates the advisor to get to the second of these three circles so i won't i won't steal your message duncan tell them about the second circle here after okay, well, growing hold on. down we get hold to hold on what? if
0: i'm not mistaken you have a resource that goes back to those metrics on the 75 and as the growth of the of the you've got some tools on that do you not
1: Sure. Yeah. We've got an online tool. We've got an advisor comparison tool where you can jump out to the website. You can put in six data points, your assets, your revenues, how many advisors, how many staff, how much reoccurring revenue, how many clients, and you will get a side-by-side comparison of your business versus top quartile. Interesting. for, For key metrics, so AUM revenue, all those same metrics, but also the ratios. So revenue per client, assets per client, clients per resource, clients per advisor, you'll get side-by-side comparison. And then for every one of those metrics, we're going to score it red, yellow, green. Red is critical. Yellow is you're within 30% of the observation of top performers. Green is you are at 95% of the level or above in terms of your, your numbers versus top quartile. The exercise takes 30 seconds and you get back a scorecard, and then for every one of those metrics, if you are yellow or red, we'll tell you exactly where you need to be looking. So what's the remedy if you've got metrics that are out of line? Where can somebody get that? You go to our firm's website, ft, so Frank, Tom, ftportfolios.com, and then you use the advisor login. So if you've got a an advisor login to the site, you jump in there, We've got an advisor best practices page, and it's one of the headlines right there on the front page.
0: So to me, it seems that would perfectly bookend because as you know, we put a big emphasis on time auditing and uh, it's very, it's, it's, I don't know if it's that revealing, but it's often will reveal to a lead advisor. We'll say, you worked 45 hours last week and you spent five hours on your most deserving clients who are often the least demanding, who represent 80% of your business, and you spend 40 hours working with the 80% who generally are often a little bit more needy, but represent 20% of the business, and you're wondering why you're on a collision course with a plateau. I think if somebody goes through the time audit and your process collectively, they'll find it exactly to what degree they need to grow down, and also what their value is worth and who they're ideally suited for. And that might propel somebody to the brand within the brand, which ultimately means, and I, I, I don't want to oversimplify that, but growing down means growing down your client count potentially. Sure. growing down your households and holdings? Because I mean, like you said, as somebody grows, they're adopting these new clients who are bringing with them this cobbled together approach. Next thing you know, you've got you've yep. got a team with 450 clients, 900 holdings. They've got to take a really good look at all of that from a streamlining perspective. But, but the beauty of the exercise is it will propel you into that real sweet spot of the brand within a brand, which means you might have 300 clients, but the lead advisor is going to work with 50 and that team, the, the gold desk, and the C and B clients will become somebody else's A client on the team to the point yep. where it's a different person, but it's not a, a handoff. It's an upgrade because it's the same practice and the same process, but, but yep. reframing. The relationships to both addressable audiences, going to the 50 and saying, hey, look, we've made a decision to grow our business down so we can go deeper into the client experience and get further ahead of your evolving needs because you're on a track where it's going to get very complex for the rest of your life. And then, of course, all the dynastic issues, that future pacing activates belonging for both groups and there's veins of gold in both addressable audiences, which I'm sure you've seen too.
1: 100%. Yeah, so the, the Bs and Cs that go to the, the gold desk, right? So the gold desk is the, the sub brand where we're looking for efficiency. What advisors are experiencing is when they when they go through that exercise and another service advisor engages and has the bandwidth to engage more deeply, They're finding more assets, They're finding more assets because some of these clients have advisors that haven't talked to them for the last 12 to 18 months. They've got assets parked at the bank. They've got other accounts, uh, they've had a, they've had, or they're going to have a liquidity event. Maybe it's not a huge retirement account, but they're finding more assets. And so it is a, is a way to address capacity without having to terminate relationships that could be meaningful. Right? Because you've got, if you've been in the business 25 years, you've got clients who took a chance on you 25 years ago. Right? You've got uh, B or C clients who maybe they used to be A clients, but now they've just been spending down. They're in in income mode, and you can't you can't kick them to the curb. You're not going to feel good about yourself. So it is a way to deal with that. It also is a great place to build talent. Right? It's a great way to construct a team and, and build bench strength because you can, you can hire a service advisor, give them these responsibilities. And if they show potential to, to move into a higher value role, you already have them in the organization. You, you know, that they have the values, they understand the process, and then you don't have to go outside for critical positions and you can backfill in, in, Less skilled positions now I, I I say that I want to be very careful saying that, but it's it's not as technical of a position, and you you create a track for for talents development and this is especially valuable as firms get larger
0: well and that just closes the loop back to enterprise value and you're taking hr seriously and just demonstrating that you're not going to max out and we all know how Little's law works. The closer you get to maxing out, the more things will fall through the cracks. So this is just you getting out in front of it in the spirit of not plateauing the client experience either, because ultimately those needs are fluid and dynamic. Now,
1: growing so, okay, down. Real quick, donkey. can, I just, yeah, yeah. can, can we, I, just, I just have one one interesting thing? So everybody knows 80-20, right? You of all people know this because Pareto is built on 80-20. Um, 80-20 actually breaks down to 80, 15, and five when you look at it. If you, if you segment a book and it's, it's A, B, and C, we're typically going to see 80% of the revenue in the top tier. And that's not new information to advisors. Okay? Where it gets interesting is now you get 15% of your revenue from that middle tier, maybe the middle third. And they typically get 5% of revenue from the bottom third. So that's, that's interesting, but here's the other fascinating part. If you look at the average revenue per client in each of those segments, if we look at the A's, their, their revenue per client on average is if you're 80, 15, five, the revenue per client for an A is 10 times a B on average. Mm-hmm. It's 25 times on average the C. That's the math that's inside of 8020. So, I love I, one of my favorite things to do when I'm with an advisor. Maybe they come up to me after a conference and they've got 10 minutes. Is we'll just, we'll just get out the notepad. How many clients do you have? How much revenue? How have you tiered it? And we'll, we will calculate the revenue per client for each tier. Classic example last week I did it with an advisor. Top tier was $24,000 of revenue. His A was $24,000 of revenue. His B, Came out to 2300 and change. So there's your 10X. Mm-hmm. Right? His C's, $960 per client. So there's your 25X comparison between A's and C's. Then we talk about where they're spending their time. And when I heard you talking about five hours of the 45, the term that I've been using for that is you're upside down in the business. You and your team, you're upside down. Now, most people are not comfortable upside down. Unless you're a fighter pilot or a roller coaster enthusiast, it's uncomfortable being upside down. Your body is not designed to function upside down. Everything feels awkward. If you are spending five hours a week as a high caliber advisor of your 45, you're upside down. We need to fix that. Mm-hmm. we want to help you fix that and liberate you from that so that you understand that gravity is not supposed to be pulling all your blood to your brain, right? That's not the way the body was designed. So I just, when you said the five and 45, it just made me think of, of being upside down. And, and that's the language that I'm, I'm finding is resonating with a lot of advisors. They go, yeah, things are not as they should be.
0: So that's the counterintuitive peril of trying to be all things to all people and not getting up in front of capacity needs and putting an emphasis on those qualitative distinctions, especially because the needs are becoming complex, competitive factors, commoditization. Okay, you covered some amazing ground there. Okay, so you've got the stepping stone growing down. That's sort of one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat, just being a little bit more deliberate. There's a bit of a Goldilocks element here where going from there into a brand within the brand, that for a lot of teams is just right. That is perfect. But then you've got a you know a small percentage of teams that keep going. And this this, this is would be a little bit hot for some people, but it's ideal for others. And that's going all in. And that's basically saying, I'm going to become a multifamily office for the 5, 10, 20 percent of my clients, and I'm going all in, which means in 12 to 18 months, I have 25 to 40 clients. Now for some people, that concentration risk, that's just that's just a non-starter. But for others, because, yep. because back to 20, there's a bookend on the other side, we see teams that do 80, 20 on the 20. And they've got 15 clients that represent 45% of their business. And they're looking down the road at the evolving needs of those clients, plus the law of environment. That's the kind of the circles they run in. There are some teams that say, I want to have 40 clients exactly like that. And I can't do that being all things to all people. I've got to really engineer that all in next level. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, that's that is that is exciting to a lot of advisors, but candidly, that's that's somewhat terrifying to another population because it is far removed from what they are comfortable with, and not every advisor wants to take on that concentration risk, and not every advisor or team is willing to part ways with not only some clients that have been successful, but habits and and kind of legacy ways that they've been working together. And so it's. It is not for everybody. When, we, when I was thinking about this in particular, um, my oldest daughter played volleyball in high school. She was a great volleyball player, and she wanted to go on to college. And so she emailed 15 schools. Uh, she was fortunate enough to get an offer from a Division I volleyball program. Um, and she went there four years, had a fantastic time, didn't play as much as she wanted to, but, but she had a great, a great experience there. There's a subset of volleyball players who will go and play professional volleyball or play Olympic level volleyball. The percentage of of college volleyball players who move on is minute. Right? It's not even one in a hundred. Right? It's like one in five hundred has a shot. Is right? not not going to go and play, but has a shot. And this is true in any, in any sport, right? As you go from playing it recreationally as a kid to high school, to college, if you're fortunate enough to go to college, then there's the pro level. And it is, it is incredibly competitive. It requires rigorous discipline, uh, laser focus. Right? I see that same those same principles as what it takes to get to what we're talking about. If you want to get the multi-family office, that's what it requires. In candidly, not everybody, not everybody wants to do that. The the bulk of the advisor population, right, they're 57 to 62. They're not necessarily the ones that are moving in that direction. They've had success, they've been diligent savers, right? They've built a great business. But most of them, if we're being honest, are not wired in such a way that they're going to they go that direction with a finite time horizon. It's, it's the next tranche of advisors that are going this way and that are looking at it very, very closely. It's the 45 to 55-year-old advisors or the 40 to 50s who are saying, no, 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 we, we, we see where this is going and we're willing to work and we're willing to work hard to get there. That's, well, that's I'm going the to way want to bring I, you in. I, We were thinking about internally internalizing it.
0: Yeah, no, that's good, and I, I'm going to want to bring you in uh, for perspective on this because, as you know, Chris Jepson and I and uh, uh, some people on our bench here are building out the progression to the multifamily office, and uh, I don't, I wouldn't say I underestimated the complexity, but. It's a great exercise to go through to consolidate and create these checklists and and considerations, even if it convinces somebody not to do it and stick in the middle, the sweet spot of the brand within the brand. But we are seeing some people that are in that space now and the complexity of needs is just, uh, it's it's incredible when you've got clients that are in that $100 million net worth category. Anyway, we'll save that for another conversation. I want to get to the culmination of the conversation, which is the fourth three-circle Venn diagram. And uh, we just want you to reimagine growth and where this is going directionally. So so you got your three-circle Venn diagram. In the left circle, you have B to C. In the middle, you have B to B. And in the right, you have franchise ready. So... A lot of what we've been talking about is refining and optimizing, professionalizing and standardizing your business to client retail business for growth, enterprise value, consistency. And many advisory teams are content with that. And they're going to have a great exit or a great, you know, with a client in mind, continuity and succession plan. In place. My point, Kevin, is I just want to remind everybody, based on this in the spirit of IP, your B2C business is a proof of concept. And if it's documented entirely, fully and completely, you can put that in the hands of someone else and you can shift to a B2B, a business to business dynamic, or you can go out and acquire a business. And you've heard me say, Because there are some people that want to bring on 50 new clients, but they also want to bring on one business with 50 clients, and they've got the bench strength, they've got the process depth and breadth in place. So with demography doing what it's doing, so many advisors that are three years out or less with an underwhelming or non-existent continuity and succession plan, are you seeing this accelerate, advisors going into the B2B dynamic?
1: hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is an accelerating wave. Um, it's only going to continue to accelerate because of advisor demographics. When I engage in conversations with advisors around this topic, I'm I'm careful to to point out, um, and this is this is my rule. I've heard it. I've heard a few others preaching this that before you go looking to acquire, right before you make that decision, the the best litmus test is to ask yourself, is my current business ready to be sold? Is is the business that I have today ready to be sold? Because, and the reason this is important is if the existing business is is a mess, Now, that's being a bit extreme, right? If the existing business is a mess, you're going to go buy something that may or may not be a mess. You have compounded the level of complexity in an industry that's only going to get more complicated so the prerequisite to increase your odds of successful transition is to say no the business that we have it it could be sold or it is it is franchise ready in its current form even if it's a b2c business like you just described we've got process we've outsourced from the investment side we've got um, the team in place we have or will have the bandwidth to when we onboard these new clients of this other advisor, or maybe we're bringing one of their staff people over. That is a prerequisite that I'm, that I'm preaching. Is it, is it always that way? No, it's not always that way, but it is, it is critical and it will dramatically increase the probability for success. The other thing that I'm seeing, and this, this is one that is a little bit trickier to navigate, is the, the clever acquirers are doing a couple of things and they're doing them well. They're going out and they're not necessarily acquiring all of a business. They're going out and they're saying, "Yeah, we see this business, we're going to we want your 50 best relationships. We don't want the 250. We want the 50." And oh by the way, we will be willing to pay up for those 50 because the quality is high. So now the seller, now the seller is saying, "Okay, Maybe my business is two times revenue if I sell it all in one place, but maybe I could carve off the 50 and get a premium for those and still be able to sell what's left over at two times. Then it becomes more interesting to the seller. They're either doing that or they're saying, we're going to buy the 250 and they're working out a financial arrangement to where they know they're going to in turn do something with the 200. Either it's going to get parked with the service team or they're going to find another solution because they've recognized hey, capacity is critical. Absorbing 250 relationships is a tall task. Those bottom 200, it's, you know, 20% of the revenue. If we're talking about 250, it's 20% of the revenue. What are we really interested in? We're interested in the, in the top 50 clients, the 80% of revenue. So it's happening in... Um, Advisors are getting more creative around how they're actually tackling this problem.
0: And the better that team is in terms of being process-driven with IP, the more they're in the driver's seat and they can maintain, they can call the shots, they can maintain their legacy, being client-centered in terms of outcomes. All roads lead to an elevation to the client. You know, it's interesting. You said something as the litmus test, and it's it lines up beautifully, but actually hand in glove because my litmus test has always been: Are you and the key players in your enterprise obsolete? Could you be gone and the place would still run like a Swiss watch? Okay, that in sync with what you said. Could I sell my business and it'd be continuous in its in its flow together? I think that makes the perfect. Uh, litmus test, but here's the thing, and we're seeing this, and it's it's quite it's staggering, both in terms of productivity, but also fulfillment, when the B two B goes into franchise ready, which means they're not just acquiring a business, they are acquiring more than one business, and they're attracting advisors that are fed up with the friction and the regulatory and the volatility and uncertainty. They just want to be liberated to focus on what they love to do. So they want to draft in and take advantage of scale. And this becomes another income stream for the lead advisor to become franchise ready. I will just say, as we wind down here, everybody tends to knee jerk and say, there's way more buyers than sellers. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Which is just an opportunity for professional scarcity and professional contrast, because I think the bar is low right? For a lot of opportunities, I think you can really stand out, but based on demographic forces, you get out in front of it. Now those forces and dynamics are going to change in the next three to five years and you'll be well positioned before I let you go. Speaking of positioned, now you're a hockey fan. What's your favorite
1: position to watch? Which, which position on the team do you most appreciate? Well, so I'm fascinated by goaltenders. Um, I'm fascinated in particular by their movement and what they can do on ice skates, the lateral movement, the flexibility, the agility, the, the reflexes. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by them. I am more than anything. I'm, I would say I'm not fascinated by individuals. I'm, I'm more fascinated by how they move in concert, right? Because when you first start watching hockey, your eye, your eye follows the puck from the novice fan the eye follows the puck. Well, as you watch more hockey, and this is going to be true of any sport, you start watching what people without the puck are doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets really interesting because then you, you, you see, and the coverage doesn't always show it, but you know if a guy's coming up ice, you know that they're where other players should be, right? And you know what creates opportunities, and what creates opportunities is space. Right? What creates opportunity in soccer is space what creates opportunity and hockey is space basketball is space so how do they create the space and how do they capitalize on it with the skills that they have so if you if you're gonna if you're gonna force me to pick one position the goalies i'm also i'm also very intrigued with defensemen and the reason i'm intrigued with defensemen is they they don't have the same padding that the goalies have but they are the ones who are more inclined to throw their body in front of a hundred mile an hour slap shot which i just i mean i Last time you held a or last time I held a hockey puck, I thought, this thing's going to come at me at a hundred miles an hour, and i'm I'm not even wearing as much padding sometimes as a football player in certain spots. And I'm exposed on my skates because it's just a thin boot. I'm exposed to my wrist. I mean, it just these guys are they're they're warriors. That's the term that I would use for them. They are I, I will tell warriors. you something,
0: Kevin. Having grown up with hockey all my life, when they introduced the carbon fiber stick. My appreciation for the goalie and the defenseman went up because the reaction time and the risk because of the velocity, the speed of that puck. You got to remember, the pucks are frozen, so they don't bounce as much, which is incredible. But back to your point about the complete player, uh, you look at a uh, player, uh, Patrice Bergeron for Boston. He is the classic 200-foot player. Hard to play against when he doesn't have the puck. Incredibly crafty when he has the puck. Playmaker, but he is not tilted one side to the other. And, um, you know, the whole plus minus stat is reflected in that. He's one of my favorite players in the NHL. Who's one of your favorites?
1: Well, when I first started watching hockey, my wife and I, she loved the Pittsburgh Penguins. So I I got to watch Crosby, a lot of Crosby and a lot of Malkin. In particular and those guys have been playing together for I don't know fifteen years. Yeah. Incredibly skilled. I really like watching them. I liked watching Tyler Johnson for years because he played for the Spokane Chiefs. I grew up mm. in Spokane. Good good dude from everything that I can tell and and fun to watch. I think and this is this is one where I think there's mixed emotions, but to me Ovechkin is is phenomenal. And he's phenomenal because I had no idea until I really started paying attention to how big he is and how physical he is as a forward, but incredibly skilled. And the the guy's 40 plus now, man, playing with all the kids and still successful, still effective.
0: I don't know if he's quite 40, but he's pushing it. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, both of his parents were Olympians. What I respect is his incredible longevity and relevance from beginning to today. He's on the verge of of passing somebody on the all-time scoring list. I think he was drafted number two behind Crosby, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe he was a year before or after. Malkin might have been a year after. I'm pretty sure Bergeron played junior hockey with Crosby, if I'm not mistaken. And I saw them team Canada at the Vancouver Olympics. When you go to a practice, go onto ice level and, and feel it. It's, it's just incredible. Well, okay. So somebody wants to gain access to some of your resources. They can speak with their first trust wholesaler, or they can go to the website through the advisor portal. I highly recommend, because I know some of the things you've talked about today we're also captured in the Insights and Innovations blog that you and Jackie uh, contribute to, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
1: yeah so, so that's we, essential. We have the blog. Yeah, we've got the blog. We've got 40 plus videos on our website. Uh, a number of them you've done with Chris Jepsen. Obviously, the, the Advisor Playbook, which is, which is yours and Chris's work, is timeless. Um, and I know there's, there's a ton of us, myself included, who are, who are eagerly anticipating the Blue Square Method. So I'm excited. And, and for those of you on the podcast, Duncan told me that there's a good amount of what we covered today baked into that book. So that will be a resource for everybody as well.
0: Well, always uh, very diplomatic as always. I appreciate that. And uh, let's do this again. And maybe we'll do it in a webinar format so we can go in deeper and maybe even break it into modules to go deeper into the implementation. Because I am absolutely convinced this is the next frontier. This is where it's all going. So thank you very much for your time. I'm hoping we can cross paths in person sooner than later. But uh, let's definitely talk about a follow-up webinar so we can go into this a little bit more deeply.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I guess as a new Seattle hockey fan, I need to say go cracking, right? Go crackin'. It's First season, it's been rough, but we're all in. So thank you.
0: Awesome. Okay, man. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and/or guests, and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.